Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. I'm Hazel Edwards and Cheryl Clark is in New Zealand and we are going to share a podcast today uh, with a great deal of enthusiasm. Uh, I've always admired Cheryl Clark's work ethic and versatility and we both agree with learning by doing, which is what we're doing today too. Um, Cheryl was originally a young adult children's author, but she also writes across genres and she's got a very, very large um, and growing international adult mystery crime series. Uh, And as a practising editor, she brings another view to mentoring, and that's one of the things we want to talk about today, and has considerable experience in running tertiary writing courses at Victoria University and other places. She reviews from the perspective of a writer and is self-employed, which is a, a challenge these days. She's one of the best on structuring and has a PhD now in a writing-related field. She also uses local Australian settings in her mystery fiction, but she's an internationalist with a Finnish writer residency, US study, UK mystery publisher and international sales. Plus, she now lives in New Zealand. Over to you, Cheryl. Thanks, Hazel. I think we could stop there, couldn't we? (laughs) Uh, I've known Hazel for many years. Initially, we both were teaching um, writing, as Hazel said, um, in the Diploma of Professional Writing and Editing, and we were both writing children's books. Hazel's probably best known for her picture book, There's a Hippopotamus on Our Roof Eating Cake, but she's also, like me, been writing adult crime fiction. Wed Then Dead on the Garn is her latest in her Celebrant Sleuth series. Um, She's also written how-to guides for writers, including writing family histories and being an authorpreneur. Now, Hazel and I uh, have realised we've had fairly parallel paths in our writing and publishing um, industries, and this is why we decided to do a podcast chat about it. So first of all, Hazel, uh, how would you describe yourself? Well, that's been a bit of a challenge because uh, I write in a number of fields and I've got an educational background. But for the last few years on my business card, I've put authorpreneur. And some people have trouble spelling that and they say, oh, what's it about? But it's a very good talking point. What it is is the attitude that a writer can self-generate projects rather than wait for things to happen and uh, that's uh, that's what I use now authorpreneur sometimes I say author educator Uh, how do you describe yourself Cheryl well I used to say um, I was a word soaker and 
in all kinds of ways. Um, I'm not so sure about that now. I think I'm a bit like you in terms of entrepreneur. I don't like sitting on my hands. I'm uh, look, always looking for a new project. But I think I've come down to writer slash editor these days. I still do a bit of teaching, but I put my helping energies into editing and working with people on their manuscripts, which which is, you know, very satisfying. And and unlike teaching, you don't have to grade people. You just help them. Now, we've both gravitated to adult crime fiction um, after a lot of children's books. What's made you write crime fiction? Well, I think it was a chance to extend my skills uh, because I've always been pretty woeful at plotting. I'm okay on characters, but trying to get a really clever plot and a twist on the end of it uh, was a challenge for me. Uh, Also to write longer. um, Although writing a picture storybook of 32 pages is equally challenging to writing uh, a 60,000 word novel. They're different sorts of challenges. And I wanted to learn how to uh, write a longer piece, but I also wanted something that would work long term in the sense of having a series. And I wanted a character And that's why I invented my celebrant sleuth who solves mysteries at weddings and funerals and so on. And she can move across cultures and lots of different settings. And it was a way of me not getting bored because I could use uh, completely different settings. That's where Where Dead Dead on the Gan comes in. The actual Gan is the setting of that one. Um, And so I suppose in a way I'd always tried to learn or research in a new field every year, uh, whatever I was writing. And so with a mystery, there was a a real um, reason for doing so. So it was for the length. It was for having a series. It was the intellectual plotting challenge. And realistically, it was to have a genre backlist internationally because writers long-term have to look at what is possible that will happen have a recurring audience. So that's what happened in my case. But but why do you think you moved into that area? Because you've got a lot that um, what I've always admired was the, the way you'd use the Melbourne settings uh, so effectively. And internationalists love reading that too. I've just actually been writing an article, another one for the Trip Fiction website to co with my uh, new book that's coming out next month. Um, And it really makes you think about locations, which is such an important part of crime writing. But um, I've been writing crime since the 90s. I started with short stories, um, but around that time I also um, got into writing children's books. So I guess children's writing uh, has, has taken up a huge proportion of my time, but I never really gave up the crime writing. I've had something kind of bubbling along for quite a long time that took many drafts uh, and that finally came out uh, in 2018, Trust Me, I'm Dead. But I agree with you about the plotting. It really does test your plotting skills and you really have to think um, long and hard about not just your main plot line 
but your red herrings and your clues and uh, not giving things away too early, which is kind of like a cardinal <laughs> sin, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And here I'd like to pay credit to you in terms of research because it was you who told me about the forensic science course and I went to do that so that I didn't uh, make mistakes in my scientific background. I've always worked on the premise of either uh, participant observation. Well, I wasn't actually going to do that for forensic science, but um, the other way is by immersing yourself in an area or having a co-writer from that field. And um, in the case of um, When Then Dead on the GAN, um, I wrote with Jeffrey Wright for a commissioned um, script for the ABC based on that. And it was such a, a valuable experience to work with somebody who was so much better in twists and turns in the plots that I learned an enormous amount. But I also learned a lot from that forensic science course. So thank you very much for that. And that's what I mean about us being parallel people, I guess. Yes, that course was um, was very useful. And I, I find, um, you know, like we were going to talk about research. Uh, you know, there's so much out there now. I've probably got at least a dozen books on my shelves now that I've collected over the last few years. But the very first one I ever bought was from a secondhand shop in Melbourne many, many years ago. And it's uh, the California Police uh, guide to procedure um, and has a lot of uh, cases in it with forensic evidence. So I guess my fascination, you know, as, as I said, has been going for many years and, and you do collect things. I've got a huge box full of uh, clippings from the age and different magazines and very often that's what starts an idea for me is to read something and then there'll be something in there that just stays with me uh, and slowly but surely develops into an idea for a novel. Um, mm -hmm. So that researching, it just feeds into your writing in so many ways, doesn't it? It's just not only do you oh. need to know things, but it can inspire new ideas. Oh, I agree with you. I think probably you have a more scientific basis to many of your stories. I think I I don't write um, the extreme violence, but I didn't want to make. I'm not like you do. I, I I didn't want to make a mistake in any of the assumptions. So quite often you have to find out a lot in order to make sure that one small fact is correct. So I interviewed about. 25 celebrant sleuths who operated in all sorts of fields who told me some fabulous stories um, because that was a versatile character who could move through cultures and um, move through settings. And uh, I'm very pleased with the occupation that I gave her. Um, so uh, I think we have slightly different emphases in there, but we also um, both agree you have to do a lot to make sure that it's right. There's nothing worse than reading somebody's story and you think, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, you've had a, um, a residency in Finland, haven't you? And so a Finnish background you would be familiar with. I've been to Antarctica and um, as, as a writer in residence 
uh, slightly longer than intended because we got stuck in the polar ice. But um, I read all the stuff, stuff about Antarctica and occasionally I'll come across something written by someone who's never been there and it's wrong. Um, and so you've got to make sure your facts are right. And so I tend to use um, an expert reader, somebody who knows, maybe a scientist, uh, about uh, uh, reading the draft to make sure it's right. But I also use uh, what I call a naive reader, somebody who just reads for the story to make sure it works. And I think that's part of the professionalism of making sure your story is the best you can make it. Yes, well, I the residency in Finland, um, I ended up my, I've got another series with a character called Mel Forrest, who's a, a detective, and uh, he's on leave. And in the second novel, I decided, because I was going to Finland for this one-month residency, that mm -hmm. I had to find a reason for Mel to go to Finland as well. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And I was lucky there that um, I was able to interview a, a sergeant who was actually teaching at the police college in the biggest town near where I was staying. Uh, and he had worked in major crime and homicide as well. And he was a wonderful person. And he gave me several really good ideas for the novel. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. um, one thing that someone else at the residency happened to say a, a, a Finnish person and I thought oh that sounds interesting and went and looked up a bit more about what she'd told me and lo and behold there's another uh, and it turned out to be a major uh, plot element that just magically wove almost wove itself into the story and gave some of my characters really good motivation for the actions that they're taking so you just never know when people are going to give you fantastic ideas, do you? No, and um, I, I was a bit apprehensive with the Antarctic expeditioners because some of them were so highly qualified in glaciology or in the various bio aspects and, and, and so on. And I was worried uh, at what they, how they would re react to what I'd written. And what I found was they were thrilled to bits because nobody had written very much about their area, particularly the Dizo. He, he's firmly convinced by fic fictional character as him. Um, so, you know, sometimes um, people are thrilled to feel that um, you've used their work style in, in your mystery. And so that's a bonus. Uh, but... Both of us, apart from having residencies in icy places, in this case were poles apart, weren't they, Cheryl? Um, we both teach, but in recent years, particularly over the pandemic and lockdown, uh, the mentoring of writers and the teaching of writers has changed completely and we've all had to learn so many new skills. Um, what's been most challenging for you, Cheryl? Uh, I think... I found Zoom and being able to teach on Zoom has worked really well. Um, and it's it's meant that my writing group, we've been meeting for about 10 years, they've been able to continue to meet, which is great because you've got that connection. Uh, the technology defeats me at times. I can always Google the answer. I may not always understand it. Uh, but there's nothing more infuriating than doing something like we're doing 
you know, recording something and then you test the recording later and it, it's either hasn't worked or the um, I've done some videos for various institutions and your, your mouse and the words that the person can hear are out of sync and things like that. And um, so it's it's been a challenge, Hazel, been a challenge. I would agree with that. I, I found initially uh, using Zoom for groups of people was very much affected by whether those people knew each other beforehand and felt they could trust the others in the writing group or whether they were... Um, feeling naked and sharing online um, their ideas. And that was very different, whereas the group that had known each other before, they were um, much more comfortable. I found the most difficult thing was to learn the technology to make sure that I could put up their sample work on a sharing arrangement on the screen. I found that tough. But I've had a group of... Um, uh, uh, surgeons with migrant backgrounds who've been with me for a while now and they used a different uh, it wasn't zoom it was jitsi and that was a different setup because they knew each other mm. and could um actually uh, they trusted each other and they were technologically more proficient than i was so they could do that and that made an enormous difference so uh, i think the real benefit that all the writers have had over the use of Zoom, et cetera, has been the possibility of uh, international and interstate contacts. Uh, and it doesn't matter where people live. I've just finished um, a, an online festival with the Society of Women Writers. And in the last year or so, that has boomed because so many who could not have physically got to particular locations have been participating online and learning new skills. And the confidence that has come with that has taken them into an international publishing world rather than getting frustrated locally that they can't place something. So I think um, on balance, there have been so many more benefits to, yes. yep. um, uh, for, for all of us. I'm, I'm very conscious that it, it saved a lot of time, but um, I think one of the difficulties of the lockdown period for many people has been that many of the outlets for their work have changed and that people who would normally have a book launch and people making a fuss about their new book and selling lots of copies and autographing and so on, all of that is gone. And... Um, Although you can have a, a mini launch on a on a screen, it's not quite the same thing. And I think that's the loss and the loss um, of more connection with the booksellers and distributors and so on. So there have been pluses and minuses in that. Uh, but I think it's meant that it's possible, uh, for example, there are a lot more collaborations online now. And in some cases, some people had never met each other physically. They've only met online with their work. The puppeteers that, um, uh, Alarican puppeteers that I'm working with for the Hijabi Girl uh, premiere in Brisbane in a couple of weeks' time, we've never physically met in four years. But <laughs> we have a, a production because we've been able to work online. And I think for some creatives, it, it's been a good time. For others, they've found 
they felt isolated. How how have you found it in terms of your a normal writing life because we're used to working at home as writers and many other people found working from home very threatening but it was our normal way of living how did you find it um very up and down actually um I started out uh the first you know the first big year of lockdowns in Melbourne um I found that creating routines for myself really helped, uh, setting things to happen at a certain time. So kind of being a bit over the top in regulating my day and making sure that I got things done, and particularly because, funnily enough, I expected as lockdowns went on that my editing work would die off. And, in fact, after the first couple of months, it was like people around the world found their feet and I started getting absolutely inundated with editing work and and that hasn't really stopped. I've now continually, um, you know, I'm trying to fit things in and then trying to find time for my writing. So, but I, I, I do find that having some kind of structure or some kind of discipline, I'm a great fan of accountability. So I have two writers, probably more than two, but two regular people uh, that we exchange emails regularly. How are you going? What have you done? Um, just just that thing of being able to say, yes, I have written. Yes, I've done um, this many pages or that many words or, or whatever has been really useful. And the other thing since I've been here in New Zealand, I've started a habit of every Wednesday I go to the local library and take my laptop and I write in the library because I know that even if the rest of my week has been really busy, that's my writing time and I get quite a lot done. It's really focused. So, you know, I, th- I think that that has been very useful, but I will say also that like many people, I had periods where I couldn't write and I felt very despondent and uninspired. So, yeah, up and down, up and down. What about yeah, you? Yeah, to be honest, um, because I've been in Melbourne, which was in probably the most, the severest lockdown, um, and I found that um, I was gaining much more satisfaction from mentoring others who had projects that. Um, they wanted to concentrate on because during the pandemic they became conscious of uh, what was valuable in their lives and they wanted to capture family um, quiet heroes or write about things that were really important to them. And I found personally I was getting more satisfaction from helping with the mentoring. These are the ones who call themselves my hazelnuts when they get published. They suggested that, not me. Um, but uh, I didn't. I haven't written a lot of really creative stuff. Um, but like you, I'm pretty disciplined. But I was at a point where I was finding that so much of my life was um, taken up with what I call literary administrivia. <laughs> Um, I was having to sort out rights. I've got quite a big backlist and I'm not the world's greatest keeper of records uh, and I've improved, but 
because rights are so important now when moving into new fields in which stories can be recorded or performed, it is very important for writers. They may have older works that suddenly become very topical because of their subject matter. I've got one set in Darwin with the pandemic outback ferals, and that's had an enormous coverage, and it's a 10-year-old book. Um, so I found that I was. I decided to keep take the year to. I didn't know how long the pandemic would go, to sort out some of that side of things. But even before then, I became increasingly aware of the percentage of time that was going on what I call administrivia. I can totally agree with that. It just is <laughs> endless, isn't it? Yeah. What percentage do you think you'd spend on original? creative stuff as opposed to, um, well, necessary things that you have to do, but um, what I'd call literary administrivia. Well, there's, you know, there's always that big elephant in the corner, which is called tax. Um, yes, I've just and, done that. And, you know, most of the records I think we have to keep inevitably will come back in some way to reporting for tax so for that reason alone you know you have to be uh dedicated with it don't you and it does take up a lot of time I would say uh putting the editing aside which has its own administration with invoices and quotes and all that kind of stuff just the writing itself probably 20 percent is is the paperwork that goes with it um especially around even things like making sure that your books are registered for PLR and ELR and um, Which is, copyright, and copyright payments, you know, all of that kind of thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's funny because I was reading something the other day about the importance of, of retaining your copyright and how Kate Bush would be feeling right now if um, she didn't still have the rights to running up that hill, which has become incredibly popular again through a TV show. You know, you just never know when something, as you say, something is going to pop up that you might have written 10 or 15 years ago um, and suddenly somebody wants it for something. The difficulty also is that you might know that morally that work is yours and maybe the rights are supposed to have come back to you, but you can't find a bit of paper or the file that says that. And yep. it takes ages and frustrations to do it. The other thing too is, and this is where I think being belonging to a professional organisation, like in my case is the Australian Society of Authors, etc., um, where they offer advice, um, we say a contract if you're collaborating on a project together, so that right from the beginning, even if you think you're going to be friends for life, you need to um, work out who owns what. And um, it can be um, very difficult if some particular project is highly, highly financially successful or goes into many translations and so on. Um, The other issue that arises is that um, quite often uh, when people collaborate, they bring different sorts of skills to the project They learn from each other while in the project, which is fabulous, 
but they can't remember who thought of what because it's all become part of theirs. And that's a difficulty where they genuinely think they that, that, that it's all theirs and maybe it isn't. And that's where it can get to be very, very difficult. So it's very wise right at the beginning to make sure you do have a contract. And, and there's a difference between co-writing and mentoring. Co-writing is generally, it's a wonderful way of overcoming procrastination because you have to produce your share by the time you see the other people. Well, but, that's that accountability thing again, isn't it? Oh, definitely. The cappuccino approach, I call it, yeah. Um, but you, you really, um, that's different from mentoring where somebody has uh, a great deal of experience in a field and they're hel helping a novice. That's different. Um, what uh, I'd really like to throw into the mix, and it's a bit controversial, um, is that uh, a lot of people are playing it being an author. They, they're playing on social media and hyping up things with superlatives. But it comes down to the fact you actually have to do the work. And if you've written one book, you're not necessarily an expert on all fields. And all of us who've been around for a long time know that writing is a lifetime apprenticeship. And to learn your craft, you have to continue to learn and be respectful of those who've got knowledge in fields you don't know. So I am immensely respectful of editors who make things look much better or people who format things for me. Um, but I think a, a bit of mutual respect, I, I don't like some of the sniping that's going on on um, uh, social media. That is counterproductive for everybody. What we all want to do is to write as well as possible in a way that is enjoyable for the reader, entertaining, thought-provoking, and maybe makes them come out the end of the book having a slightly different point of view that's a little bit more tolerant. But I do think the overuse of, of superlatives could be toned down a bit. Yes, and just picking up on one of the points about what a book can do, I... You know, it makes me sad in some ways how many series there are out there at the moment and and how few stand and this has been happening for a while, how few standalone novels are getting mm -hmm. the kudos they deserve and, and this mm -hmm. more more than that, the sales, because mm -hmm. so many series are trendy and and they come and go. And, and and don't have much staying power. Some do, but a lot don't. Um, and I just think I think books are so magical for kids that I just I just wish there was a bit more of a mix on the bookshelves in in the shops. I think is mm. what I'm saying. Mm. Um, I just remember books I read when I was a child and. And how they stay with you, and and sure, some of them were series, but but some of the ones that I've read over the years are just absolutely amazing. And I, uh, I'd like, I'd like um, 
I guess I'm living in a fantasy land. I, I think I'd, I think what I'm, we're missing actually is books in the classroom a bit more, you know, that so many mm. teachers feel now that there's no time for reading for pleasure, you know, reading aloud in the afternoons and um, reading. I mean, I know someone who, who used to teach year eights who read aloud to her year eights you know, until what you call administrivia took over and she no longer had time. So, mm. yeah, maybe I'm just being a bit nostalgic, Hazel. Well, I think one of the things during the lockdown and pandemic has been that um, quite the distribution or the potential getting a copy of a particular book you want has become a lot more difficult. They've gone into different formats, ebooks and audio, which is fine. But um, if the publishers decide to concentrate on just a few titles or just a few authors, there's often some gems that are missed out in that. So they're not reprinted um, and they're not been around long enough. And slowly readers by word of mouth recommend them and some of them uh, are rescued and reprinted and so on because there's nothing better for an author than for somebody to come up and say, oh, look, I read that book of yours and this, this really made a difference to my life at that time. Now, um, or, I mean, you can have funny things too. I had a, a kid in uh, in uh, um library queue and I saw she had a book of mine and and there was a photo of the author on the back and she looked straight past me and I thought now there's a message there you must keep your author photos up to date (laughs) (laughs) but she was engrossed in the book as she walked along the line so I thought that was sufficient recommendation (laughs) well you get it with 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 adult author, uh, readers as well, you know, nothing better than for someone to say, oh, I couldn't put your book down. I stayed up half the night reading it. And you think, oh, yes, I've done my job. Yes. Well, I don't like to say I read in the bath a lot and I don't like to say, look, it was so good I dropped it in the bath. That's not a good thing <laughs> to say in front of librarians, is it? Uh, <laughs> what's, um, what's one of the questions you get asked the most as a writer? Am I in your book? No, 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 not that. Um, oh, generally, it's a, where do you get your ideas from? Um, sometimes it's, um, if it comes from a child, I had one from a six-year-old boy who said, I Googled you and you're really old. You're not <laughs> six. How come you can write about a six-year-old boy? Now, I love comments like that because the thing is that uh, I think a writer needs to be any age. They need to be androgynous in the sense of being able to write from many uh, gender perspectives, providing they do their research first. And um, uh, because if you're a long-term writer, you don't want to be writing your autobiography about a writer writing an autobiography about a writer writing an autobiography, you've got to grow as well. So um, I think uh, probably the questions are uh, 
sometimes a matter of pride if you've picked up an occupation or a situation that they're conscious of. The area I've had the greatest feedback on has been Antarctica because I was there in for the Australian Antarctic Division in 2021, sorry, 21, at the turn of the millennium, and there hadn't been much written about uh, with fiction, lots of scientific reports, and anyone associated with Antarctica, because it is, it does get you uh, the fever of Antarctica, um, they were thrilled and would read anything and were uh, really wanting to share books like Antarctic Dad, which is about a dad uh, uh, going down south for the 14 months. Um, anything that related to their lives or they could share with their kids. Mm -hmm. With the how-to books, um, I think the um, How to Write a Non-Boring Family has probably been one of the most popular because it's fairly blunt about um, how you can fix up your story so your relatives will actually want to read it. How about you, Cheryl? <laughs> uh, mostly what I get asked, uh, how do you find the time to write, I have to say. Um, mm. And, you know, it is the discipline thing, isn't it? You've, you've, got, to oh, make, you've got to make the time, really, um, and yeah. you've got to stick at it. So all yeah. that stuff I said about routine and discipline, that's all part of it, um, and it's just a, it's sheer bloody-minded perseverance, really, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, there are lots of phrases for it, and some are rooted than others, but, yes, you're quite right. Now, I think anybody listening to this now, because we're just going to finish in a minute. Yep, we are. Go off and do your tiny bit of writing for the day because it's only from the tiny bits and pieces that you accumulate that eventually become the finished book. Even if you don't feel like it and even if you think it looks like rubbish, get some little bit down every time. What's your last piece of advice, Cheryl? Read widely. That's all I'll say. Read as much as you can. All right, thanks for talking, Hazel. Been good to catch up across the ditch, as they say here. Yes, and, yes uh, they do. We'll, uh, we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Goodbye and thank you for teaching me how to audio record on Zoom across the <laughs> beach. <laughs>